morning, everyone. Glad you're here today and hope you're wide-eyed and awake today and uh, ready to uh, dig into our text. It's a great one. And uh, so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we uh, pray today that you'd use the journey with your son in the Garden of Gethsemane to give great comfort, especially for those today who in the last week or last month or in the last number of months have been thrown into a crucible of difficulty and hardship, and today they come just wondering, does anybody understand? Does anybody know what's going on inside my heart? The loneliest place in the world can be in a large congregation of people with a huge burden on your heart, and I pray today that you would personally meet with them. I pray that you would use this text and this message to both encourage and to exhort us And Father, also, in some cases, even show people the reality of what they need to do in terms of receiving your Son as Savior and turning from their sins. Help us to see the immense agony, the personal suffering that your Son experienced so that we might personally experience redemption through him. And uh, we ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The aim of the Gospel of Matthew is to demonstrate that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he's the Jewish Messiah sent to bring God's kingdom to the world. Matthew's purpose is not just to collect all the stories of Jesus' life or to give you a summary of his teaching. Matthew's aim is a theological one. He wants to prove and to show you that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he's a suffering Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he's the Son of Man, and that he's sent to bring this kingdom to the world. That's why it ends with the Great Commission, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Matthew 26 to 28, where we are right now, is a climactic moment in the life of Jesus, often called Holy Week or the Passion. It is when Matthew's portrayal of Christ becomes very clear, where he shows us various pictures or images, if you will, of what he wants us to see in Jesus. We've seen already, for instance, Jesus take the Passover meal and transform it into the Lord's Supper. We've seen him talk to his disciples about the fact that they would all abandon him and that Peter in particular would deny him. And what Matthew is doing here is trying to show us a picture of Jesus, rather multiple pictures of Jesus, from different angles. All of this designed to show you that Jesus is unlike any Messiah that you would have anticipated. He is, in fact, a suffering Messiah. And now I know that for most of us, this concept of a suffering Messiah is not a new idea, but what Matthew wants you to do here is not just know it. He wants you to feel it. He wants to take you into the Garden of Gethsemane for you to enter into Jesus' world, if you will, so that you can really understand what Jesus was going through, so that when you go through very difficult circumstances, you can know that Jesus really understands, and then also you can see the beauty of what he has done for you and how much he has suffered on your behalf. He wants you, in fact, to really get it, that Jesus was a man, that he was deeply troubled, that he was in anguish, he was alone, that he he really wrestled with the will of God. I think in the garden he was really afraid But beyond all of this, there's a point beyond just some kind of morbid observance of Jesus. What Matthew wants you to do here is for you to watch him, 
And when you watch him, that you would love him. You would see how he suffers, and you would know that, that he did this for me. And you would go, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And then in loving him, the result would then you would follow him. So you watch him, then you love him, and then you follow him. And that's why Matthew puts together this, this narrative of the, the gospel of, of Matthew and the way that he has in, in the account of the Garden of Gethsemane so you can really see what Jesus is all about and what he's like. There's five different pictures that I'm going to show you today, and with each of them I hope you see something about the beauty of the redemption that you have in Christ, but also that you'll see the beauty of the comfort that you have in Jesus. I want you leaving today knowing that Jesus really understands. So here's the first picture. It is of a Savior who grieves. The location of this event is the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, this, this Gethsemane was a, a garden on the side of Mount Olives, on the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley from the city of Jerusalem. It was a place that Jesus and his disciples, according to John 18, frequently went to pray. It may have been a, a garden that was owned by a friend or a relative of one of the disciples, or maybe a friend of, of Jesus. Regardless, this was a special place. The, the name Gethsemane literally means an oil press. So you think of what's going to happen in this garden. Jesus is going to enter the crucible of immense suffering in a garden called the oil press. And, and what was happening is this garden was probably a, a walled enclosure on the side of Mount, the Mount of Olives that included a number of um, olive trees or maybe even a location where the olives, when they picked, were pressed out and valuable olive oil was then gathered up and sold. This is a favorite place of Jesus to go and pray and in verse 26 or rather 36 he says to his the disciples sit here while i go over there and pray and so jesus leaves the eight disciples behind remember now judas is gone and then he takes with him three other disciples his kind of inner circle that's peter james and john to go with him Verse 37, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began, notice this, to be sorrowful and troubled. The words sorrowful and troubled mean great grief and distress. Great grief and distress. If you've ever lost somebody close to you or experienced something deeply personal or painful, you know that this kind of deep grief or distress is an emotion that is like none other it, it comes from a part of your heart that prior to experiencing this you had no idea was there in fact it's the kind of grief quite frankly that is scary because it hits you with such velocity and with such emotion and you feel things so strongly and this grief is not tame it's it's within you and then at, at just at the most seemingly inappropriate or um, uncontainable or your inability to even really plan for it your grief just comes it's like right there and it feels as though it's completely overwhelming and in verse 38 we see that jesus is deeply grieving and he even opens up his heart to his close friends so realize that jesus says to his disciples my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Read this as a man saying to his closest friends, I am hurting here. 
And he says, even to death. It, it's the kind of expression that you might say that this, this, how I feel, is killing me. Because grief, sorrow, when it's this strong and, and has this level of emotion and this level of depth, when it comes into your soul, it feels as though, if I feel this way for a long time, I will die. The sense of, I can't live with this level of feeling going on inside of me. And here is the Son of God, who's also the Son of Man, who says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He's actually quoting almost verbatim Psalms 42 and 45, where it says, my soul is cast down within me. Or 43, where it says, why are you cast down, O my soul? This is the kind of grief that's so frightening, frankly, that you have to tell somebody about it. But who do you tell? You want to tell your closest friends. And so this is a remarkably human and sensitive moment. Jesus tells his disciples that he is struggling, that he's hurting, and he asks them to do something with him. His request is, remain here and watch with me. You know, there's very few times in the New Testament that Jesus asks his disciples to do anything for him. And here, in, in the moment of great sorrow and difficulty he asks them to to remain with him and and to watch with him to be there with him in other words to live in community as i'm grieving help me i'm going to go and pray but stay with me don't don't leave me it's a remarkable moment that we have here and it should make us marvel and just really fully appreciate the extent of christ's suffering Because what he's doing here, friends, is he's anticipating the absorption of God's wrath. Why is he afraid? Why is he grieving? Why is he sorrowful? Because he knows what's coming. He, unlike the disciples, knows about the holiness of God. He knows about the consequence of sin. And he knows what happens when God's wrath is poured out against sin. He knows the pent-up justice of a holy God. You see, this is the beauty of what Christ has done you don't understand what the message of the Bible is all about or understand what the essence of what's called the good news, it's this, it's that we're sinful human beings and that God, through Christ, provides a way for our sins to be atoned for. But the only way he atones for those sins is by taking out the punishment for our sins on Christ. And so God takes all of the sins of the universe, of those who would receive Christ, and he pours them all out on Jesus. This is the nature of the atonement. This is the absorption of God's wrath. So when Jesus hangs on that cross, he's absorbing not only death, he's absorbing the full-fledged fury of a sin-hating holy God. And Christ, anticipating that moment on your behalf, trembles and is sorrowful. And I would argue is, in a godly way, afraid. His experience is gut-wrenching, it's untamable, this grief, it's frightening. And the implication then of a grieving Savior is this, that the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness. The effect is that while we may never be able to understand what Jesus went through, we never need to doubt if he knows what we go through. He's gone so farther in his grief than you could ever go. His suffering not only purchases our forgiveness, but it abolishes the possibility that you would ever be alone in your grief. 
Which is why Psalm 23 is so important. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are what? With me. He's not just with you theoretically. He's with you practically and personally because this is a Savior who grieves. So when you're hurting and you feel as though this frightening grief is just right at the bottom of your mouth about ready to just spill out over and you wonder, does anybody understand if there's nobody on this earth, there is one person who was on this earth who understands. His name is Jesus. And Matthew wants you to see him in this garden so you could watch him and then you would love him and go, yeah, that's my Savior right there. That's my Savior. And then you would follow Him. He's a Savior who grieves. Secondly, notice He is a man who wrestles. He leaves the three disciples behind Him. Luke tells us, 22:41 that He goes a stone's throw away so He can find a place to pray. And while He needs the support of His friends, this will be something He will have to wrestle with alone. According to verse 39... Jesus goes to prayer, and it says that he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed. In other, way, in other words, he fell on his face prostrate. So here's the Son of God lying in the dirt of the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his heart. He's taken the lowliest prayer position possible. It's a prayer position that I reserve personally for moments of great anguish. When you just lay out before the Lord and say, here I am. And here's the Son of God on the dirt in this garden pouring out his soul to his Father, a a position that just typifies what's going on in this garden. And his prayer has two parts. The first part is he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He prays in a, a personal way. Father, my Father, or as Mark says, Abba, Father. Let this cup pass from me. The cup refers not just to his death, and his suffering, but even more significantly, according to Isaiah 51:17, it refers to the fully loaded cup of God's wrath. It's the anticipated moment when Jesus will be forsaken by his Father in chapter 27, 46, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's that cup that Jesus asks, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows what's in store. But it's the words, if it is possible, that are striking to me. Because Jesus knows that the Father can do all things. So, so what exactly is he asking? What's happening here, it seems, is that Jesus is facing the same sort of struggle, and if you will, even a temptation, that he faced in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan offered him an alternative plan to accomplish God's will. Remember that? He's in the wilderness and he offers him various ways that Jesus could, in the end, prove that he was the Son of God or take on his rightful rule of the kingdoms by bowing down to Satan. And here is yet another opportunity for Jesus to consider if he will pursue the singular plan of the Father or if there's another way. And so Jesus, crying out to his Father, says, If it is possible... In prayer, what happens is that Jesus inquires about if there's an alternative route by which the Father's redemptive purposes could be accomplished. He prays with gut-wrenching agony. He knows what's in store. He's wrestling with the reality of doing the Father's will. But then, the second thing he says in the prayer is the turning point. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And you ought to thank God that he said that. 
Because in this moment, what happens is that Jesus takes the reality of the cup of suffering that he would have to embrace, the fully ordered reality of God's wrath, and he eclipses that with the beautiful and more hopeful assurance of doing the will of his Father. At the end of the day, friends, he chose the will of the Father over passing by the cup of wrath. And in so doing, purchased the possibility of redemption to those who would know Christ as their Savior. Jesus knows who he is. He knows who the Father is. He knows what his purpose is. And although he knows that embracing this cup will be a painful path, he also knows that even in the midst of great pain, the safest place you can be is right in the middle of God's will. There's something I just want to get into your minds and hearts, and it's this, that that God's will is really safe, friends, even if it's really hard. You may not be able to understand that always, and you may just be like, this is really tough and really, but, but if it's God's will, and if it's what God has ordained, it is incredibly safe, although it is hard. Because there are categories in life that we can't even fully understand or think about that sometimes we just have to trust that God knows what he's doing. It's like a child and how a child will trust a dad or will trust a father. For instance, this weekend I um, took Savannah out for a bike ride. She got a new bike for her birthday. She's all excited about it and it was nice. It was like 50 degrees. So I went for a run with her about two miles or so and had to go really, really slow because of her, not because of me. And so we're, we're going along and, um, of course, she has her little stuffed animals in her basket and the stuffed animals have a, have a helmet on, which is, is kind of silly. But anyway, so we're, we're going along. We get done with a run and um, she parks her bike and then I sit down in the sun and start stretching. And of course, you know, five-year-olds are prone to ask very invasive questions. And so she came up, she said, Dad, why do you do that? I said, well, because when dad runs, his legs get tired and sore, so it's good to stretch him out. She said, well, why does that happen? I said, well, because dad's getting old, and it happens, you know. And she's like, really? I said, yeah. And then she looked at me, she goes, dad, your hair's getting gray. I was like, oh, man, here we go. Here we go, here we go. And I, I said, well, honey, that's because, now listen to me, that's because your dad's getting old. He's getting old. And all of a sudden she went, but I don't want you to get old, Dad. And she was like, oh, yeah. And so I was like, what's going on here? Like a girl thing happening. She's like, what? She's like crying. I said, honey, honey, it's okay. Daddy's not going to die, right? I don't want you to, to be old. And I'm like, honey, but you don't understand. People get old. It's part of, you're going to get older. Daddy's going to get older. And it's all going to be okay. And just by simply explaining or trying to explain to her categories that she didn't have in her mind and heart, just by saying to her, you can trust me that this is the way that life is, there was comfort. And that's what a child does. He or she places their comfort in the Father. And I want you to see in the same way, here is the, here's your Savior who's like a son placing his hope and his comfort in the will of the Father. If it's possible, remove this cup, but not my will, but yours be done. This is a sensitive moment. And in this moment, redemption turns realize that in the garden of eden it was not your will but mine that's what brought sin onto the earth and now in this moment christ is inverting the curse of sin in the world and bringing and ushering in a new moment where by saying not my will but yours the redemption of god's people would take place 
In his commentary on Matthew, D.A. Carson says this, In the first garden, not your will but mine, changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. And because of the fact that this is a son who wrestles, this makes him worthy to be our Savior. The writer of Hebrews says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Therefore, you ought to marvel at the gracious choice that Jesus makes here. You ought to know that there's never a time in your life that Jesus can't relate to your struggle to do what God wants you to do. So you watch him, you love him, and you follow him. Here's the third thing. Here is a teacher who cautions. So Jesus, even in the midst of this season, is still trying to help his disciples grow. After spending some time in prayer, Jesus returns back to the disciples in verse 40. Imagine now with me the emotions of what he's just experienced, poured out his heart, laying prostrate before his father, and then imagine what it must have been like to come back and find his closest friends fast asleep. Luke cuts him a little bit of a break in chapter 22, 45. He says they were sleeping for sorrow, which meant that they were so exhausted because of all of the emotions of what they'd experienced. But Imagine what this is going to be like. I mean, it's one thing to fall asleep in church. I mean, that's, that's bad enough as it is, but imagine falling asleep on your friend. Imagine you're sitting on your couch at your home, and they're like, dude, i got to tell you something. Man, I'm just really struggling. I'm just, got, I'm just really in pain. And all of a sudden you go, ooh, what time is it? I mean, you're like, I'm going to find me a new friend, right? Or imagine you're, you're, you're telling your wife something really important on a, on a date and, 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 and you're like, honey, I really, I just really love you. You're like the most important thing. And you look over and she's going, Grr. I mean, it would just, you'd be like, Grr, right? You feel so alone. And here Jesus is pouring out his heart and he comes back and his disciples are fast asleep. I think this may be, apart from the moment when Jesus is on the cross, this may be one of the loneliest moments in Jesus' life. And he says to them, so could you not watch with me one hour? I don't, I don't think he's like in their face. I think he's like, so you tell me you can't watch with me for an hour? And then he, and yet in the midst of his grief, he then says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That their sleeping is giving evidence that they're not ready for what's coming. And that's why he says the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. He tells them, watch and pray. They're going to need God's help because what's coming is going to blow them away. The, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What does he mean by this? He reminds them that all of the best intentions in the world, all of their desires, all of what they think they're going to do, their willingness, their drive, their eagerness, their excitement will all go away that the only thing that will cause them to be persevering all the way to the end is by prevailing prayer, asking for God's help. So here's Jesus in one of the darkest and loneliest moments of his life, still trying to help his disciples grow and mature. Even in a disappointing moment, he is still teaching them. 
And by the way, Jesus will continue to teach all the way through the end of his life. Even on the cross, he'll say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's trying to help the disciples know that they need to prevail in prayer because just like him, they need God's help in order to do what is before them. And here it is just beautiful to behold the grieving, wrestling son who's seeking help from his father. So we're called to watch him, we're called to love him, we're called to follow him. Here's the fourth. Here's a Messiah who endures. Look at verse 42. So Jesus leaves the disciples again, now for another time of prayer. Verse 42 says, and again for a second time he went away and prayed. Now notice the difference. It says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So in the former prayer, he said, if possible, if possible, remove this cup. But in this text, verse 42, he says, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. So the difference between the two, I don't want to make too big a deal about it because some people think that it's just he's saying the same thing, but it seems to me that there's a little bit of difference here. In fact, maybe a significant level of difference where before he was saying, if possible, remove it, so take it out of the way. But in this case, he says, I'll drink it so that you can take it out of the way. In the first, he says, remove it. Get it out of here. The other is said, give me grace. I'll go through it so it can be removed. And here I think we find one of the most important things to understand what the Christian life is all about, and that is the word endurance. You see, too many people think that hope comes from escaping the pain instead of finding ways to be able to bear up under it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that there's no temptation that has taken you. That word can also mean trial, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tried more than you can bear. But with the temptation, provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So hear me, the hope, as demonstrated by Jesus, is not in running away. The psalmist said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I could fly away to the mountain. And how often have we talked exactly like that? If I could just get out of here. And some of you tried that. You got out of a job, you got out of a marriage, you, you, you left, and guess what? The people found you. Oh, they have different names and faces, but they found you. And the reality is God's trying to teach you a lesson about how to be able to endure. And instead of saying, can you take this cup away, instead say, Lord, I'll drink this so you can remove it. Hope was found here in the willingness to endure while trusting the Father's heart. That's not easy. The writer of Hebrews, reflecting on this, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then how are we to do this? We're to do this looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And here, these next two words are really important. Consider him. Listen, the key to endurance is not by hoping it'll go away. The key to endurance is by considering him. 
It's by looking in this text and considering who He is, seeing Him, and then loving Him, and then following Him. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So how do you remain encouraged and and, and full-heartedness when you're asked to go through a very difficult season? The answer is not hoping that it will end. The answer is by considering Jesus. This text shows us the wisdom of spiritual endurance when a loving God is in control. It shows us that Jesus knows what we should know, and that is that God is worthy to be trusted. And it was by Jesus' endurance that you've been given the cup of blessing, of redemption. And so Matthew says, watch him, love him, follow him. And then finally, here, notice this, there's a son who obeys. It ends with his final prayer time, verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came back to the disciples and found them asleep again, and then said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. So Jesus apparently can hear the group of soldiers and religious rulers that are coming up the side of the mountain, and in effect says, you're still sleeping and resting? He's no longer going to urge them about spiritual readiness. Instead, the hour is here. He's told them that he's going to be betrayed, and it's right now. Verse 48, see the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. That, that is a, that is a unbelievably significant statement. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Here is the Son of God who healed the blind, raised the dead, healed the lepers, taught people about God's kingdom, and now a band of sinful men, one of them his disciples, the religious rulers and soldiers are coming to arrest him. He is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then Jesus says, verse 46, Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. In other words, Jesus is not running away. He's poured out his soul, he's, he's wrestled, he's endured, and now the hour has come. And what's going on here is that Jesus knows what is coming up that mountain, but he also knows what's coming beyond the cross. And, and when you look at this text, your, your heart just has to leap with gratitude that Jesus would walk to this betrayal and to his arrest because it was that walk that eventually brought your freedom. That walk is what made your freedom in Christ possible. And knowing what was coming, Jesus chose to embrace the cross. In the same way the writer of Hebrews says this, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood Therefore, notice this, let us go to him outside the camp. So the idea is Jesus has already gone outside the camp, and the idea is you're inside the city, and the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, you go outside. You go to him. You go to him outside the camp. He's been abused, and that's his cross. He's outside the camp, and you are to go to him and to bear the reproach that he endured. And then why? What's the motivation? For here we have no lasting city. Meaning, we don't live for this. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, so we seeking a city that has nothing to do with this planet or this earth or this world, but seeking a city that is to come, we go outside of the gate to endure what he has endured. 
And so with this knowledge of who Jesus is, what he has done, we are compelled, even driven, to go with him outside the camp. So the question is this. Can you think of a moment in your lifetime that you would call your loneliest moment? Can you allow yourself just to go there for a moment? Think of a time in your life that was your absolute most lonely moment. I can think of that so clearly in my life. After Sylvia's death and before Savannah, we had multiple miscarriages, and there was one moment in the middle of that season that I thought that our world was going to come apart. We had taken a pregnancy test, found out we were pregnant again, went into the doctor, did an ultrasound, and found out that the home for a baby had been built, but there was no baby inside. It's called a blighted ovum. The, the, the cruelty of that medical moment was that it gave a positive pregnancy test but there was no baby in there and I remember when the doctor told me and there's no way for us to really take care of this without surgery and so I remember sitting in a hospital room when they wheeled my wife out and there she went and I'm all alone in this sterile white hospital room and I'm thinking this is unbearable and then I remember the flood of grace is coming over my soul of even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And even in the darkest of the loneliest of the hardest moments of my life, guess what? Jesus shows up. So whatever your loneliest moment is, and maybe you've been there before, maybe you're there today, Maybe that's going to happen in 2011. Maybe it's been there in the past, and you can look back and know you were in the middle of a crowd and you had this huge weight. Maybe that's where you're at today. In the middle of that moment, here's the deal. Jesus faced the most lonely moment in all of the universe so that you would know you're never really alone, never. So you always have an advocate. You always have a high priest that you can come and say, do you understand? And the answer is yes, that Jesus' suffering was personal so that your redemption and your comfort could be personal. And the call from this text is us to watch him and then to love him and to follow him. And for some of you, that may mean today just saying to him, Lord Jesus, I, I need your help. It may be saying, I feel so alone but I know that I'm not. You're here with me. And like Moses, who lived as seeing him who is invisible, today you would just say, Lord Jesus, I know that you know. The reason we have this garden scene, friends, is so that you could see the power of what he suffered for you in purchasing your redemption, but also you could know this is a Jesus who really understands in ways that you'll never understand. But when you come, you can always come with boldness because this is a Savior who not only sympathizes with your weaknesses, He lived it by becoming a man on this earth. So thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Thank you that in the midst of dark, dark moments, you know what it's like to experience grief and pain. You know what it's like to even be confused. You know what it's like to wrestle. You are fully man. And so we see in this garden a beautiful picture of what you experience so that we can come boldly and receive mercy and grace in time of help.
So thank you. In College Park, while we're just in a quiet moment of reflection, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just maybe there's just something you need to say to Jesus right now. I'm going to ask our prayer team if they'd come up both here and in worship too as you just bow your heads. These folks are going to be up here in the front after the service and I want you to know both who they are and how you can pray, how they can pray with you so that there could be mercy and grace. And if you need someone to pray with you after the service here and worship too, those folks are available to pour out mercy and grace on your soul. Don't leave today without having somebody just pray over you, knowing that you're not alone, that Jesus really understands. And if you need to look somewhere, look to that garden and see him. So Lord Jesus, help us, we pray. And we ask this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.